Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is, Inframiscellanea, published by Diffractor on April 22, 2022 on the AI Alignment Forum. This post is a write-up of some miscellaneous results that don't cohere into a single big post, but might possibly be of interest. Also, in mostly unrelated news, this stuff can be a bit tricky to learn for the first time. So, I was thinking of assembling an infra version of the fixpoint exercise sheet, to help cross the gap from there's all these complicated posts, and it looks nifty but intimidating to I understand the basic concepts well enough to casually use them when applicable, and can work through most of the requisite math on my own. This particular realm of math is one where it seems pretty feasible to guide someone to reinvent large chunks of it on their own with sufficiently leading discussion, and recreating something yourself does wonders for being able to actually wield it elsewhere. So, if anyone wants to chip in with assembling the problem sheet, or testing it out by spending a day trying out various math problems, please send me a message. Result summaries. 1. Because the vector space of signed measures on X and the vector space of continuous functions X are, are dual to each other, inframeasures are dual to infrafunctions. An infrafunction can be viewed as either a concave functional mapping a measure to an expectation value to expectation values, or as a set of a functions. Compare this to how an inframeasure can be viewed as either a concave functional mapping a function to an expectation value, or as a set of a measures. The theory of these sorts of things is highly incomplete at the moment. 2. Convex spaces are spaces with a distinguished function delta xx, which takes the average of a mixture of points. Our being a convex space, kinda, is why the notion of average of a distribution exists. So, we can ask what sorts of space x have a distinguished function xx to get the infra-analog of the notion of average. As it turns out, it's a perfect halfway point between probability theory, and lattice stuff set theory. They're convex spaces that are also complete lattices, and the probabilistic structure must interact with the order structure in the appropriate way. Specifically, given a probability distribution over subsets, mixing the sets together and taking the infinimum should produce the same result as mixing the infinima of the sets together. 3. What is the space of inframeasures over the empty set? It's just fun working through this, in the same way as it's fun working out why minimizing over the empty set produces infinity. 4. Besides the semi-direct product and the free product, another notion of product has shown up. In the specific case of crisp infradistributions, it's the closest match to the naive notion of the product of probability distributions, as it lets you factorize expectations in the same way as products of probability distributions do. 5. The notion of cross-entropy of crisp infradistributions is defined, rounding out the trio of entropy, cross-entropy, KL divergence, where we previously had two of the three. An equality in the probability theory case, entropy plus KL divergence is cross-entropy, is shown to be an inequality here. Cross-entropy has a nice intuitive interpretation. 6. There's a function fix, xxx, where x is a compact space, that gets you the Claney fixpoint theorem, from computer science, the Banach fixpoint theorem, and that one theorem about Markov chains having a stationary distribution. 7. A classic result of probability theory is the disintegration theorem, which roughly states that given a probability distribution nu, delta, x times y, it can always be written as being produced by a probability distribution mu, delta x, and a Markov kernel kx delta y giving you the conditional probabilities. This is the theorem that secretly underlies the ability to condition a distribution nearly any event or variable you want. This fails for infradistributions, but fortunately, given any crisp infradistribution phi, there's a canonical choice of nearby infradistribution that is disintegrable into an infradistribution psi, x, and an infrakernal kxy so you can kinda make conditional infradistributions. 
8. Consider the following computational problem. You've got some value function versus colon e times 0, 1, 0, 1. e is the space of environments, which describes how much you care about getting a particular utility in a particular environment, and you're trying to do. e. Pick the policy pi which maximizes the worst case value of, your environment, your utility. As it turns out, subject to some mild conditions on the derivatives of the value function, any problem of this form can be rephrased as. Namely, maximizing expected utility wrt some causal belief function theta. This allows recasting several other possible value functions as just the problem of do well in an infra environment. 9. The objectively correct topolog IEs on spaces of inframeasures has been found. It was generated by a minor variation on the attempt made in less basic inframeasure theory, and so obsoletes the relevant section. The topology section wound up getting too big and got broken out into its own post. 10. It doesn't matter whether you're viewing inframeasures as a concave function from functions to their expectation values, or viewing them as a set of a measures. This is LF duality, aka the fundamental theorem of inframeasures. Sadly, the proof of it didn't generalize over to more abstract cases like what shows up in domain theory. Until now. 11. For belief functions, it's proved which sorts of them can be translated into causal belief functions without affecting the utilities particularly much. In other words, this result tells you a decision-theoretic fairness condition on which sorts of problems can be viewed as causal if you try, in an expanded sense which manages to include XOR blackmail, Nukem, and counterfactual mugging. Said fairness condition comes out to be something along the lines of if what happens now depends on what you do in alternate situations, the magnitude of that effect must be proportional to the time-discounted probability of actually getting into those alternate situations. Section 1. Infrafunction CBX is the space of bounded continuous functions XR, and plus or minus X is the space of finite signed measures on XX is just some space. Compact metric spaces are the best, though it's possible to go beyond that. The fundamental theorem of inframeasures aka LF duality, says that there's a bijection between closed, convex, upper complete subsets of plus or minus X times R, and concave function CBX so this is nice because it lets you transition back and forth between an analytic way of viewing inframeasures, the concave functionals, and a geometric way, as a set of measure, number pairs. Just embellish your theorem with a bunch of fiddly details about what sort of space X is and what additional conditions to impose on the subsets and concave functions, and you're done. And the core piece that makes the fundamental theorem tick is for every concave function, the set of hyperplanes above it is sufficient data to recover the concave function which isn't especially sensitive to measures versus functions, it's a general fact of linear algebra functional analysis. The only extra step that's specific to inframeasures is the interpretation of those hyperplanes as measure, number pairs. But note that CBX, the space of bounded continuous functions XR, and plus or minus X, the space of finite signed measures on X, are dual to each other. Continuous linear functionals CBX are correspond to signed measures, and continuous linear functionals plus or minus X are correspond to bounded continuous functions. It's a completely symmetric situation. So what if we tried doing things the other way around? Inframeasures are what you get when you start with concave functions CBXR, represent them as a set of affine functions hyperplanes, and interpret those affine functions as measure, number pairs. But what about when you start with concave functions plus or minus XR, represent them as a set of affine functions hyperplanes, and interpret those affine functions as function, number pairs. Well, that's an infrafunction. An infrafunction f is either a concave function of type plus or minus xr, or a set of function number pairs, f, b, and we have. Just as inframeasures respond to functions with the worst case measure, infrafunctions respond to measures with the worst case function. 
When would these be useful? Well, they seem to capture every case where randomizing your action is better than picking what to do deterministically. If randomizing your action is better than deterministic choice, that means that the function delta a0, 1, yielding the value of various distributions over actions is a concave function. And so, LF duality will turn that concave function over distributions into a set of functions a0, 1, that you're, implicitly, assuming the worst case of. This formalizes the thing Eliezer was talking about where randomization is only helpful when you're trying to do worst case optimization against an adversary instead of average case optimization. Most of the proofs for this are utterly routine. There's probably lots of interesting stuff to show about infrafunctions but I want to get this post out in a timely manner, so instead I'll just observe that infrafunction theory is a pretty wide open place to look for nifty results. Section 2, Infraalgebras. Note, in this section, and for the proofs, the domain theory ordering on inframeasures is used, where infinimum corresponds to union. As motivated in the results preamble, which spaces x have a distinguished function xx. This would be the infra version of average. Well, the space of infra distributions contains the space of probability distributions within it. So, any space like that induces a function delta xx thus, whatever sort of space we're looking for, it should at least be a convex space, with a notion of mixture of points. Well, if x is a convex space, is that enough to get a function xx? Not yet. We do know where the probability distribution should get mapped to, we've got a function of x, delta xx but, for a crisp infradistribution, e, set of probability distributions, psi, where should that get mapped to? Well, psi is associated with a set of probability distributions psi, so psi should probably get mapped to a point that has something to do with the set of x psi, the set you get by pushing psi through the take the average function. The set psi is compact, so the set of x psi, should be compact as well. Net question, given an unempty compact subset of x, is there some distinguished point of x associated with it? Well, that's basically like asking for a space x with a distinguished function kxx, mapping non-empty compact sets, kx is the space of non-empty compact subsets of x, to points. As it turns out, if the entire space x is compact, a space like that is a poset with all non-empty infinima existing. It's basically a complete lattice except it may be missing the top point. Just map your compact set to the infinimum. So, the function we're after, let's call it flatch for flatten, should be defined something like e, convert psi into a set of probability distributions, take the average of all of those distributions to get a set of points in x, and take the inf of that set. This, at minimum, requires that x be a convex space, so you know where to map the probability distributions to, and a poset with all non-empty infinima so you know where to map sets of probability distributions to. But actually, this isn't enough by itself, the mixture structure and the order structure must interact in a certain way, as we'll get to later. But wait, there's lots of sorts of infradistributions, and we've just dealt with the crisp infradistributions, sets of probability distributions, so far. Yes. It's important to note that there's actually lots of inframeasure monads, space of crisp inframeasures, space of cohomogeneous inframeasures, etc., Producing different spaces of inframeasures X is ambiguous notation that's bad here, because all the different possible choices of space of inframeasures produce a slightly different batch of properties a space X needs for there to be a special function XX. It's not too hard to work out the details for other sorts of inframeasures, but my preferred choice is the inframeasures of type, X0,10,1, which are made of sets of a measures, lambda mu, b, where lambda plus b less than or equal to 1, which heretofore haven't been named. The reason why is because any a measure of that form can be expressed as an element of delta, x plus 2. Basically, 
The measure component lambda mu tells you how probability is distributed on the space X, the B term is the probability of a distinguished utility point, and 1 minus lambda minus B is the probability of a distinguished no utility point. So, if we can just figure out where pure utility and pure lack of utility should go, then we can go by convexity, we know where all the A measures should get mapped to, and then map an inframeasure to the inf of the set it induces, like usual. The answer is that there should be a top point of the space X, we already know there's a bottom point because of all non-empty infinima existing, and pure utility gets mapped to the top point, and pure lack of utility goes to the bottom point. And so, we're about ready to define the necessary and sufficient conditions for a compact metric space X to have a distinguished function XX where X is the space of inframeasures on X generated by sets of A measures, lambda mu, b, with lambda plus b less than or equal to 1. 1. The space X is a delta algebra, E there's a distinguished continuous function of x, delta xx. 2. The space x is a k-algebra, E there's a distinguished continuous function x kxx in particular, this induces an ordering on x where x less than or equal to y of xx, y equals x. 3. Under the induced ordering, there is a top point, x. 4. The x and of x functions interact as follows. Given any mu, delta kx, a probability distribution over compact sets, we have. Condition 4 is the key one, and quite mystifying at first glance. The key insight is that it's just implementing mixture of sets. If you've got two sets, C and D, what would the set PC plus 1 minus PD be? Well, you take all possible ways of picking a point from C and a point from D, and for each way of doing that, you average the two points together, and this gets you the set, PC plus 1 minus PD vertical bar CC, DD, and that's the obvious way to mix two sets together. If we generalize beyond this to any probability distribution over sets, you'd take all possible, measurable, ways of picking a point from each set, that'd be the function k, k asterisk mu, would be the resulting distribution over points, you average them together, and that gets you the mixture set. This whole mess is just implementing averaging sets together, we could write that whole process as of kex mu, if we wanted. This would turn the mysterious condition 4 into. Which is just a commutative diagram. It's saying that going delta kx kxx, the left-hand path, and delta kx delta xx, the right-hand path, are the same function. Intuitively, if you have a batch of sets, it doesn't matter whether you average them together first, and then take the infinimum of the mixture set, or whether you take the infinimum of all of the sets first, and then mix the infinima together. And so, in informal slogan form, the conditions for a space x to have a distinguished function xx are. 1. You can mix points together. 2, 3, the space is a complete lattice. 4, mixing sets together and taking the inf of the mixture set is the same as taking the infs of the various sets and mixing those together. Some minor differences show up when you adjust the sorts of spaces you're dealing with, or the sorts of inframeasures you're considering, but this is the basics. Theorem 1, if X is a compact metrizable space, then the four conditions above are necessary and sufficient for X to be an algebra of the monad. Algebra of the monad is the formal category theory way of saying there's a distinguished function xx. It means that there's a continuous function flatch colon xx, which we explicitly gave earlier. That's the unique function that works, st flatch flatch asterisk equals flatch flat x, both paths go xxx, and flatch x equals ix, where xxx is the unit of the monad, e, the function mapping a point to the Dirac delta distribution on that point. Also, in this case is the monad mapping the space X to the space of inframeasures CX, 0, 1, 0, 1, generated by a set of A measures, lambda mu, b, st lambda plus b less than or equal to 1. The theorem was way harder to prove than I thought. 
It requires expanding things into a 4x4 grid of commutative squares, requiring seven different lemmas to eventually turn one path into the other, and that was for only one direction of the proof. As it turns out, the category of infra-algebras and the structure preserving maps between them, affine functions that preserve infinima, top, and bottom, is somewhat interesting. If you're an CatLab fan, it's the Eilenberg-Moore category of the inframeasure monad. The product in it is the ordinary Cartesian product. Coproduct is a hideous complicated mess but it exists, and as it turns out, the coproduct of x and y is x plus y. The category might be monoidal closed, I don't know. For the specific case of infradistributions, the monoidal product of x and y should be x times y, but generalizing the construction to all convex complete lattices is pretty hard and I haven't done it yet. And the internal hum of x and y should be the space, x, y, of all lower semi-continuous infrakernels. But again, I don't know how to generalize the construction to all convex lattices. Section 3, Empty Set Shenanigans. What is? After all, is vacuously a compact metric space? Well, it depends on what is. If is the space of crisp infradistributions, then equals. Well, let's say is the space of all, 0,1 inframeasures that can be generated by sets of a measures, lambda mu, b, with lambda plus b less than or equal to 1, and work it out, since I like that one. A, 0,1 inframeasure is a concave function of type Cx, 0,1, 0,1, fulfilling some extra properties. If x is the empty set, then our elements would be the inhabitants of C, 0,1, 0,1, fulfilling some extra properties. Now, there's only one function from the empty set to anything, the empty function, which is vacuously continuous. So, the inframeasures would be the inhabitants of 1, 0,1, the various constant functions. Or, expressing it another way, just the space, 0,1. These functionals are all vacuously concave, continuous, and all the rest. So, we have equals 0,1. Remember, and a measure is, lambda mu, b, where b, lambda are non-zero numbers, and mu is a probability distribution. There are no probability distributions over the empty set, so all that's left is that plus b constant term. Now, if f, x colon x is the empty function, then what is its push forward? What's f, x asterisk, 0,1 x? Well, if a is a constant, and g is some function x 0,1, then we have. So, the push forward along the empty function is just the function mapping the constant to the constant infradistribution CA, which returns the value a no matter which function is fed in. Section 4, Independent Product. To start off with recapping the two existing notions of product. The first notion, the semidirect product, was defined as follows. If psi, x and phi, y, then psi phi, x times y, is defined as. This is an asymmetric notion, and the notation reflects this psi phi does not equal phi psi. For the special case of crisp infradistributions, you could think of psi phi as containing all the distributions whose marginal distribution on x lies in psi, and whose conditional distributions on y are all selected from phi, regardless of the x. If we think of psi and phi as being sets of available strategies for a player 1 and player 2 respectively, then psi phi would be the set of probability distributions over results that are possible when player 2 is allowed to look at player 1's result but player 2's set of available choices doesn't vary as player 1's result varies. The second notion, free product, is defined as follows. If psi, x and phi, y, then psi phi, x times y, is defined as. Note that pr asterisk x is the pullback of projection. It's like the preimage of projection, going x x times y. So, you just take the intersection of the two sets. 
For the special case of crisp infradistributions, sci-fi consists of all the distributions whose marginal distribution on X lies in psi, and whose marginal distribution on Y lies in phi. Note that taking the free product of two probability distributions produces a set of many probability distributions. But wait. Restricting to crisp infradistributions, sets of probability distributions. If free product is the set of probability distributions where their marginals must be thus and such, and semidirect product is the set of probability distributions where their marginal along this coordinate is thus and such, and the conditional distributions along the other coordinate are thus and such. That points to a missing notion of product, where the conditionals along both coordinates. It'd be something like psi times phi is the set of all probability distributions mu where, regardless of x and y, mu vertical bar x phi, and mu vertical bar y psi. Making it more formal, the independent product psi times phi, x times y, is given by. Where x is the infradistribution lambda f dot minx x f x, the infradistribution corresponding to total uncertainty over x similar for y technically, that equation should have a function that flips the coordinates of that second thingy from y times x to x times y, but whatever, it's pretty understandable anyways. Does this have any nice properties? Well, it's a bit tricky to tell in general but for the restricted special case of crisp infradistributions, sets of probability distributions, we have the following key property which also characterizes products of distributions in ordinary probability theory. And it plays a big role in evaluating expectations of factorizable functions, because you can find expectations of those functions by just decomposing it into smaller parts and multiplying them together. Theorem 2, if fxr, and gyr, or, 0,1, as the case may be, and psi, fire crisp infradistributions, then. Also, in the probabilistic case, we have that the entropy of a product of distributions is the sum of their individual entropies. The same thing holds here, for the generalization of entropy to sets of probability distributions. Theorem 3, if psi, fire crisp infradistributions, then h psi times phi equals h psi plus h phi. Section 5, cross entropy. The definition of cross entropy, h psi, phi, when psi, Fire sets of probability distributions, is. The interpretation of this is that the cross entropy of distributions, h mu, nu, is how many bits does it take on average to communicate what happened when reality is drawing from the distribution mu, and you're using a communication scheme optimized for the distribution nu. And so, if there's a set of possible things that reality could be, psi, and a set of possible codes you could use, phi, and you knew you were in a worst case scenario, you'd use an encoding from phi that achieves fairly good efficiency over all the possible distributions in psi that reality could be selecting from. And, we're assuming reality is being mean and trying to maximize the communication cost. This whole paragraph abbreviates as min nu phi max mu psi h mu, nu. An interesting thing, however, is that this makes the usual cross entropy equals entropy plus KL divergence equality into an inequality. This is because entropy, in this setting, is. This is actually a theorem. The original definition of entropy was way more complex. And also, KL divergence was previously defined as. So, we get. Less than or equal to min nu phi, max mu psi h mu plus max mu psi dkl mu, nu. Equals max mu psi h mu plus min nu phi max mu psi dkl mu, nu equals h psi plus dkl psi, phi. And so, we have. The cross entropy entropy slash KL divergence inequality, instead of equality. Section 6, Iterative Fixed Points. There's a function fix, xxx, where, if k, xx, then fix k is the limit of x, k asterisk x, k asterisk k asterisk x. This may look very familiar, and it is. 
It's just a special case of Claney's fixed point theorem. Claney's fixed point theorem says that if you've got a poset where all chains have suprema, and there's a bottom point, and your function fxx is monotone and preserves suprema, you can make the chain comma f, ff, fff, and the supremum of that chain will be the least fixed point of the function f. In our particular case, given some infraternal kxx, the push forward through that infraternal k asterisk is a function of type xx since x has a bottom under the domain theory ordering, which is reversed from the usual ordering. And this is why we're using x because that's actually bottom under the domain theory ordering and x has suprema of chains intersection. We can just throw Claney's fixed point theorem at this to show that it's well defined. The cool thing about this is that it manages to unify Claney's fixed point theorem, the Banach fixed point theorem, stationary distributions on Markov chains, and more. We can't expect fixed to be continuous in the usual sense. As an example, let the space x be the space, 0,12, the unit square. The sequence of functions not colon xx, extend it to a function xx in the obvious way, we feed it are defined as. Basically, not maps points closer to the center, though the rate at which it gets closer slows down as n increases. Now, for all finite n, fix not equals delta 0.5, 0.5, the one fixed point is the center of the square, since everything else moves towards that. However, the limit of the knot is just the identity function, and then push forward through identity as identity, so we have fix k equals 0,12. This is a clear example where there's a sudden change in the least fixed point as the function changes. The winds blowing points towards the center get weaker and weaker until they cease at the limit, and then the fixed point suddenly goes from a single point to the entire space. However, we can at least hope for Scott continuity, a weakening of ordinary continuity that's closely tied to lower semi-continuity, and domain theory. This requires that fix is monotone and preserves suprema of chains, and this actually does hold. Theorem 4, fix is Scott continuous. So, what sort of results does this produce? What if k is just a function xx? Well then, fix k is n k n x. E, take the entire space, shove it through k over and over and over and over, and eventually your set stabilizes to something where k is a bijection on it. For places where you'd normally apply the Banach fixed point theorem, that limiting set will shrink to a point, so applying fix to a contractive function will produce a single point the Dirac delta distribution on that point. If k is a Markov chain, mapping inputs to probability distributions over outputs, and it has a single stationary distribution, then fix k will give you exactly that stationary distribution. If you're in a domain theory setting, and you've got a function kxx, fix will just give you the least fixed point of the function, as expected. Section 7, The Disintegration Theorem. So, the original formulation of the disintegration theorem, in the probabilistic case, says that given any probability distribution on x times y, it's possible to decompose it uniquely into a distribution on x, and a conditional probability function x delta y which is unique almost everywhere. So, for crisp infradistributions, sets of probability distributions, we might reasonably ask whether a similar thing holds, whether they decompose into a crisp infradistribution on x and an infraternal xy. The answer is, kinda. It certainly doesn't hold in general, but given any crisp infradistribution, there's always a smallest superset of it that does disintegrate like that. Here's how it's constructed. To make the infradistribution on the x-coordinate, given some phi, x times y, that we're trying to decompose into psi, x and kxy, it's given by psi, equals prx asterisk phi. Just project it onto the x-coordinate, as expected. As for constructing the k, that will be more difficult to express. First, the definition of enclosing sets, for mu, delta, x times y. 
a closed set CX times delta Y is mu enclosing if, for PRX asterisk mu almost all X, X, mu vertical bar XC. Stated informally, an enclosing set gives you a set of available conditional probability distributions for each X, and the conditional probabilities of mu have to be picked from that set. And there should be a weak sort of continuity where if you zoom in far enough on any particular X value, the set of available options for conditional probabilities for X should be approximately as big or bigger than the set of options available in its immediate neighborhood. The definition of a mu enclosing set is robust against precisely what choice of conditional probabilities we have, because by the disintegration theorem, mu vertical bar X is unique for PRX asterisk mu almost all X, so altering the conditional probabilities only disrupts a set of measure zero, and so can only ensure that a measure zero set of X have, X, mu vertical bar X, go outside of C. Now that that's defined, given a crisp infradistribution phi, a closed set CX times delta Y is phi enclosing when it's mu enclosing for all mu phi. Or, in other words, the set of available conditional distributions for each X has to be consistent with the conditional distributions of all the probability distributions in your set phi. Let's see phi X times delta Y be defined as CC as phi enclosing. Basically, this is the smallest allowable set of conditional distributions for each X where all the probability distributions in your set phi are like yeah, this set is big enough to have my conditional distributions in it, and that also fulfills our closed graph continuity-like condition. And now can finally define our conditional infradistribution. Kx, equals c phi, x, where c phi x times delta y. We're implicitly converting the closed subset of x times delta y to a closed subset of delta y, by picking an x, and then using the usual translation from a set of probability distributions to an infradistribution. Theorem 5. C phi is a lower semi-continuous infrakernel, and PRX asterisk phi C phi is the smallest disintegrable superset of phi. Section 8, Environment Forming Constraints. Credit to Vanessa for this idea. We might want to have worst-case desiderata of the form you must do this well in these environments. This can be expressed as a zero-sum game where you're trying to find a policy where, regardless of environment, a value function depending on the environment and your expected utility, exceeds a particular value you can have the value function automatically score well for environments you want to ignore, since you are optimizing the worst case. E, you're doing. Where versus colon E times 0, 1, 0, 1, E is the space of environments, is the value function. And E pi is the distribution over histories from policy pi interacting with environment E, and U is expected utility. Increased expected utility should always be good, so we demand that versus is monotone in its second argument. As it turns out, any constraint of this form, subject to some conditions on the first and second derivatives, can be re-expressed as just trying to do well versus one particular causal law and fra environment slash set of a dash environments causal belief function damn we really need to sort out this terminology, don't we? Theorem 6, given any value function versus colon e times 0, 1, 0, 1, where e is the space of environments, which is monotone in the second argument, and as first derivatives bounded above zero and second derivatives bounded below infinity, there is a causal law, set of infra environments, theta st, occurs if, regardless of pi, pi, and utility function u. As it turns out, if lambda x versus e, x, is concave for all e, you can translate it very directly to a causal law. If it's not concave, you might get some nonlinear scaling of how the various policies do relative to each other, but the ordering of how well various policies do is unchanged. Concavity is very important here and almost all of the difficulty with proving this theorem is concentrated in figuring out how to build a monotone function g, 0, 1, 0, 1, the nonlinear rescaling, stg lambda x versus e, x, 
is concave for every choice of environment E. Section 9, Inframeasure Topologies. This section entirely obsolete Section 6 in less basic inframeasure theory, and propositions 41 through 50. I mean, the theorems are correct, but they're not about the right thing. But it was too long, so I had to break it out into its own post. Suffice to say, there's two objectively correct topologies on inframeasures motivated purely by continuity considerations. And the continuity considerations naturally spit out all the complicated compact set requirements for Polish spaces, for free. There's four highly distinct and equivalent ways to view inframeasure convergence, and all the complicated conditions on when an infrakernel is well-behaved can be obsoleted in one strike with it's a continuous function xy when you give y the objectively correct topology. Also, some of the results like LF duality for Polish spaces were actually subtly wrong. The flaw was that CBX, the space of bounded continuous functions XR, actually should have been equipped with a much more unusual and obscure topology than I originally thought it had. But don't worry, everything got repaired to the correct form. Section 10, Generalizing LF Duality. So, if there's a fundamental theorem of inframeasures, it'd definitely be LF duality, the theorem about how it's equally valid to look at inframeasures as concave functions fulfilling certain properties, or as sets of a measures fulfilling certain properties. It's equally valid to look at a concave function or the set of hyperplanes above it. Sadly, if you dig into the mathematical guts of how this result is proven, it doesn't generalize to the case of domain theory. Until now, it's been impossible to take an inframeasure defined on a domain, and have an assurance that the set of a measure's view is faithful to the originally defined function. But it got solved anyways. Thank Han Bank type theorems for locally convex cones, an excellent paper by Walter Roth on abstract generalizations of the Han Banach separation theorem. Their theorem 1 is what I disassembled and reassembled to prove what I needed. Theorem 7, given X a locally compact and compact space, and a convex function phi and concave Scott continuous function psi, both of type, x minus comma minus comma, or, x 0 comma 0 comma, where psi less than or equal to phi, then there is some affine, Scott continuous function mu of the same type signature, where psi less than or equal to mu less than or equal to phi. Corollary 1, LF duality for domains given any omega BC domain X and inframeasure psi, X. So even in domain theory, it's legitimate to view an inframeasure as the same as a set of a measures. Section 11, Faithful A-causal to causal translations. Referring back to the many faces of infra-beliefs, there was a way to, non-faithfully, translate A-causal belief functions, which can encode any sort of problem where the way reality goes depends on your policy, to pseudo-causal belief functions, which is, intuitively, assume it's possible for the predictor to make a mistake. And there was a way to faithfully translate pseudo-causal belief functions to causal belief functions, by adding an extra imaginary state, nirvana, that's one utility if you ever hit it. So, all decision theory problems can be recost in causal form, by adding imaginary extra reward states. Well not really. There's two complications. One of them is the a-causal to pseudo-causal translation, not all decision theory problems survive that one. It was extensively analyzed back in the many faces of infra-beliefs, and the key to the translation not affecting expected values particularly much is whether a particular condition holds, which can be roughly described as for a misprediction to have a large effect on what happens, it must be the case that you've got a non-negligible chance at actually entering the situation where you're mispredicted. It's like a sort of fairness condition. If Omega screwed up its predictions, could you prove it wrong? The other complication is the if nirvana ever happens, it's one utility part, as that isn't a continuous utility function, that's a lower semi-continuous one. You could try to make nirvana into a one reward state forevermore, 
and then things would be continuous, because nirvana late isn't as good, but then that introduces another complication that could change things, where you stop dealing well with decision theory problems because the time where you're being predicted is just way way too far in the future and it gets time discounted into negligibility. Although, that actually does sound somewhat sensible for good learning behavior. It seems quite difficult to learn good behavior in policy selection problems when the gap between the action and the results is long. Anyways, the result we want is some condition on a causal belief functions theta st translating them into causal belief functions theta c, with the nirvana state counting as one reward forevermore, doesn't affect expected utilities of the policies particularly much, so the good things to do post-translation are still considered pretty good things to do pre-translation, and they agree more and more as the time discount goes to infinity and the agent just more farsighted. To explain what's going on, we'll need to introduce the gamma metric on histories, a notion of difference between histories that depends on the time discount. Remember, gamma 0,1, values closer to 1 are more farsighted, and the utility functions are like. E, the reward on time step n depends on the first n plus 1 actions and observations, the string h0 colon n, and we do a time discounted sum of them. This lets you assess what happens to a utility function as its time discount goes to 1, e, the limit of farsightedness. Anyways, the gamma metric, the time discount dependent notion of difference between histories, is. The intuitive reason we care about this notion of distance is that it being small means that any utility function u gamma with the same time discount will assign similar values to those two histories, as they only start differing rather late. It's like how indistinguishable are these two histories with our r given time discount. Let theta be your a causal belief function decision theory problem that you want to translate. Then the condition to be able to translate it faithfully to a causal form is where x is the upper bound to your reward function x0,1. This is pretty complicated and introduces some new notation, so we'll break it down. I don't expect the reader to spot this, but that quantity that we're taking the limit of is always zero or higher. For the limit and the supremum, this is basically saying in the farsightedness limit, as the time discount gamma approaches 1, we should have that for any two policies pi, pi, and any distribution over histories mu that can result from the first policy, e, mu theta, pi, the quantity in parentheses should be low or negative. But, uh what is that quantity in parentheses? Why do we need it to be low or negative? Reshuffling the statement the quantity in parentheses should be zero or lower, it turns into. Remember, the a-causal to pseudo-causal translation is basically the predictor is allowed to make mistakes, and then the pseudo-causal to causal translation is basically if the predictor makes a mistake, you get one reward forever. If you think of pi as what you're predicted to do, and pi as what you actually do, and mu is the distribution over histories that results from what you're predicted to do, then mu, gamma nhn pi, is the time discounted reward, according to the predicted distribution over histories, from going to nirvana because your actual behavior, the policy pi, is inconsistent with what was supposed to happen, the history h. Basically, this quantity is you were mispredicted, your actual policy is something different, how much time discounted utility do you pick up from nirvana? Remember, Nirvana happens when your policy goes off the rails of what it was predicted to do. And what's that quantity's inf nu theta, pi d gamma kr mu, nu? Well, d gamma is a distance metric on histories, that's basically like level of similarity according to utility functions with time discount gamma d gamma kr is just extending this metric to probability distributions. Thinking of a probability distribution as a pile of dirt on events, the kr distance is effort to rearrange one dirt pile into the other dirt pile. You can either move a small amount of dirt measure a large distance to a very different outcome, or a large amount of dirt measure a small distance to a very similar outcome. So, 
gamma kr distance being low means that the two probability distributions on histories are similar at early times, and only start diverging quite late, so any utility function with time discount gamma thinks that the expected value doesn't change much. So, that quantity is like the magnitude of the time discounted change in the probability flow that results from being mispredicted. The inf nu theta, pi, part is because we're trying to find the possible distribution that's consistent with you being correctly predicted which is the closest to the distribution mu that occurred from the wrong prediction. And the multiplication by x is because, if your utility function is bounded in, 0, x, larger differences in the gamma kr distance make less difference to your expected values. Putting this all together, we can summarize the condition. As in the farsightedness limit, regardless of your true policy, pi, predicted policy, pi, or results from the misprediction, mu, the payoff from going off the rails of destiny and attaining nirvana, the mu, gamma n, part, should be comparable to or greater than the time discounted change in probability flow that results from the misprediction, the kr distance thing. If your utility function is bounded in, 0, x, that means that one reward forever is a bigger boon to you, so bigger changes in probability flow from being mispredicted are acceptable. It's the fairness condition of if I'm mispredicted, the misprediction should either have little effect on what happens, or if has a large effect, I should have a comparably large chance of actually entering the situation where I've been mispredicted and proving the prediction wrong. For the theorem, theta c is the causal translation of the a-causal belief function theta, and u gamma, n is the utility function that's just u gamma but with one reward forevermore if it hits a nirvana state. Theorem 8, for any a-causal belief function theta, if and the utility function u has rewards bounded in, 0, x, then. So, pretty much, this theorem says that the condition we discussed means that in the farsightedness limit, regardless of the utility function u, the maximum difference in expected utility between the old a-causal belief function and its causal translation shrinks to 0, uniformly across all of the policies. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.